Thank you for reading. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray now that by your spirit, you would open our hearts and our ears to hear your word. What you wish to remain in our hearts, remain, and what you wish to let go, let go, Lord. Amen. So good morning, everyone, and welcome on this day, which is Trinity Sunday, as Patrick alluded to. Trinity Sunday, I hear you say. What's that? Well, Trinity Sunday follows on a week later from Pentecost. It's when we as a church honour the Holy Trinity. That is, as Patrick said, um, our one God. God the Father, our creator, as Patrick said. God the Son, our saviour. And God the Holy Spirit, our guide and comforter. Now, although the actual word Trinity isn't present in Scripture, the concept is dotted all over the place. And despite being notoriously difficult to get your head around, the Trinity is clearly taught in the Bible. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can come to faith and have the Word of God revealed to us. And so then it's wholly appropriate that we celebrate it the week after Pentecost when the Spirit was first outpoured. The Holy Spirit is the means, the energy, and the power by which we can enter, because of Jesus, into a relationship with God, our Creator. We are all invited into this Holy Trinity. This holy relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit, that is the origin and source of all love. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. So last week, we all got the opportunity to come forward to be anointed with oil and to be prayed for. We asked our Heavenly Father to fill us with his Holy Spirit and to strengthen us in our bodies and our souls to love and serve the Lord. And this morning, our passage from Romans is going to help us to understand what being filled with the Spirit of God means for us. Now, if you remember, Patrick told us the Greek word dunamis used to describe the power of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, translated into English, means dynamite. What we're asking to be filled with, what we were asked to be filled with last week and what we're asking to be filled with each and every day is really powerful stuff and not to be underestimated. So when I say she's got spirit, what springs to mind? What do you think of? What characteristics do you associate with someone who's got spirit? Are they positive? Negative? Mix of the two? Are some people spirited in a good way and others spirited in a bad way? See, when I took a moment to think about this, it conjured up pictures that were both positive and negative. Who doesn't find it easier to describe a slightly out-of-control child as spirited, rather than calling them cheeky or tiresome? And might you prefer to call someone spirited who's a bit opinionated, outspoken, or rude? But would you not describe someone with incredible passion, drive, and determination as spirited? So perhaps it'd be fair, then, to say that someone who is spirited stands out. There's something distinct and different about them, something that makes you take notice, whether that's for good reason or bad. 
as Christians, God calls us to operate in a different and distinct way. We are called to stand out. It says in Genesis 1 that God created us in his image. He created us with the capacity to be inhabited by him. And if God is love, and we know him to be love, then why would we not want to invite him into our lives? Well, I think the thing that stands in the way of the invite is sin, or our sinful natures, or the flesh, as Paul puts it in the NRSV version of the Bible. I have used the NRSV a, a, a little through this, um, this talk, just because I think it, it gives it a real power and strength. So forgive me if you have to semi-translate from the NIV to the NRSV. So in verse 9 of our passage, if you want to follow along, we are on page 1134 if you've closed the Bibles. It says, you are not in the sinful nature or flesh. You are in the spirit since the spirit of God dwells in you. Firstly, let's clear up what Paul means by sinful nature or flesh. He doesn't mean our skin, muscles, bone. What he means is the living in our own desires. Gratifying ourselves in life without consideration for others or the consequences. Living in our sinful natures or in the flesh is somewhat short-sighted. It's immediate. It's about enjoying the now and not thinking about the future. I think it's very much the norm in today's culture, for it is simply the choice that comes naturally to us. And it doesn't have to be dramatic like the kind of sin that you would visualize in your mind. Let me give you a really simple example. Sometimes, when I go into a busy cafe or self-service restaurant, the first thing I do is scan the restaurant to find a free table. If my girls are with me, I might get them to go over and sit at that table so nobody else gets there before me. I do this before I've even looked at the queue in front of me. I don't know if there's anyone disabled or anyone who's got young children or anyone who needs that table more than me. I've just seen to my own needs without considering the consequences to those who are rightly ahead of me in the queue. This is me living in the flesh, living in the sinful nature, thinking only about myself and my needs. When I live in the spirit, I'll take what comes, table or no table. I may even give up the table that rightly comes to me when I've got my food and coffee. But what always strikes me as really bizarre, and it really, really shouldn't, is that when I'm choosing to live in the spirit, my needs are always met. Now, the indwelling of the Spirit, Christ living in us, is, I assure you, the hallmark of every believer. This is every believer's privilege from the moment they repent and believe. Every believer, no exceptions. Truly, if we confess Jesus is Lord and confess our sins, the Spirit lives in us whether we think it or not. But you see, this doesn't simply mean that our choices are taken away from us. We still get the choice of what driver we respond to. The sinful nature, the flesh, or the spirit. According to a chap called Major W. Ian Thomas, 
in his book, The Indwelling Life of Christ. A heavy read, but he says, We are so created that by anything and everything we do, we are saying to our creator, either God, I love you, or God, I could not care less. And it's the voice of the Spirit, the one that says, God, I love you, that the Christian disciple learns to recognize. Tom Wright says in his commentary that I read on Romans, a Christian life that does not involve putting to death that which drags us down into a world of the flesh is not worthy of the name. You see, God wants to gain access to our souls. He made us in such a way that the best way we function is when he is in control, when we are living by his spirit and not our own way. But God is gentle. He's not forceful. And he'll only come and dwell in us with our permission. There's no forcing, no coercing, just patience and tolerance. And this is why Paul says at the end of verse 9 that anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This painting that's going to go up now um, by William Holman Hunt although it doesn't refer to this exact passage, it explains this really, really well. It depicts Jesus as being right there, just knocking at the door, waiting patiently for us to open it and let him in. As you can see from the picture, it is us who put up the barriers and have kept him at bay. The weeds, the debris and the overgrowth are on us. All we have to do is open the door and let him in. There's no qualification. It's not exclusive. Jesus, in his spirit, wants to dwell in each and every one of us. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, I mean, let's just sit with that half of verse 11 for a moment. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. It goes on. He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. Let's unpack that. It says in verse 10 that our bodies are dead because of sin from living sinful natures. But our spirits are alive because of righteousness. Our bodies are understood to be dead because in our physical mortality, from the moment we're born, we are subject to and destined for death. But the good news is that at the same time, because of Christ's righteousness that he secured for us on the cross, our spirit is alive and the ultimate destiny of our bodies is not death but resurrection, because the same spirit that gives life to our spirit, verse 10, also gives life to our bodies, verse 11. And here you see all three elements of the Trinity, the resurrecting father, the resurrected son, and the spirit of resurrection. You see, the true sinlessness of Jesus Christ was that he never relied upon himself. He was constantly reliant upon God. 
Jesus lived in the spirit and not in the flesh. God could work out his perfect will because Jesus loved him and was totally obedient to him and fully dependent on him. And so, if the living Jesus, and I can say Jesus because of the nature of the Trinity, because where you have one member, all are present. If the living Jesus has come to live in us by means of the Holy Spirit, if that Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is living within us, then what should we look like? Shouldn't it be reasonable to assume that great change and transformation will follow. I think it should. Because Jesus shows in us. He grows in us. He doesn't stay static. He grows and it shows. And how do we know that Jesus is showing? Well, he changes our interests, our aspirations, our priorities. He works on our characters and he transforms our nature. Little by little. God can govern our behavior if we let him. In Galatians 5.13, Paul tells us that we are called to be free. But he warns us not to use that freedom to indulge in the flesh. Because that way, we're not loving our neighbor. As I illustrated earlier in the coffee shop. In Galatians 5.22, though, he lists the fruit that comes from living in the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, and self-control. They are ours. All we have to do is ask and then follow in obedience. Like I said earlier, we get a choice of what we do with that God-shaped hole within our soul. What happens when we don't fill it with God or when we're living with more of us and less of God? Well, in my experience, we'll fill it with other things. Through my teens and into my mid-twenties, the only spirit that consistently ran through my body was an alcoholic one. My life revolved around feeding my desires with no thought for the consequences, having fun, doing what I wanted, being free. That was what I wanted. It was freedom. That was what I was seeking. But my searching led ultimately to imprisonment and not freedom. That thing that I put all my passion and hope into ended up owning me, defining me, and controlling me. As Jesus says in Matthew six twenty one, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Alcohol and drugs were my treasure And that was where my heart was, even though I didn't want it or choose it to be there in the end. I was trapped by the very thing that I thought would bring me happiness and freedom. And there are many things that we can fill that space with. Money, possessions, our work, food, our reputation. But these things will never bring happiness for long. They can only deliver pleasure That is temporal. Think about it. If you put your hope into your reputation, what happens if you make a mistake and get something wrong? If you put it into your work or money, what happens if you lose your job or get made redundant? Or ultimately, what happens when you retire? 
And even if you put your hope into those things that nobody could argue weren't virtuous, like your family, your children, what happens when they leave home, move away, and they don't need us quite like they did? None of these things are in themselves bad, but none of them can fully satisfy us because it is only God by his spirit who can sustain us. So then what happens to our spirit when the things we put our hope into dissolve? Are we filled with resurrection hope and joy? Or are we overwhelmed by fear, disillusionment and hopelessness? Will we put our faith in God or will we put it in ourselves? You see, if we were capable of attaining ultimate happiness by ourselves, there would be no need for Jesus. God has made us to be in relationship with him. There is a space in us that is him-shaped. If we try and shove something else in that space, it simply won't fit. For it says in verse 13, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. Now I know, and the coffee shop illustrates, that I am never going to make the right decision every time. But it's the predominant force, the dynamic power that I spoke about and Patrick spoke about of the spirit that grows in us that makes the road narrower. It makes the choices fewer and the feelings a little bit stronger when you get something wrong. But you see, God in his grace knows our shortcomings and he welcomes our confessions when we get it wrong. Hallelujah. For Jesus has covered our sins, future, past and present. He doesn't want to condemn us because he loves us. He doesn't want us to wallow in self-pity or stay focused on our shortcomings. But he does want to convict us because he loves us in order that we will turn to him. What amazing grace he shows us. And it just gets better and better. Because when by the Spirit, verses 15 to 17, we get to cry, Abba, Father, as Jesus did, as it's when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in our hearts that we immediately recognize God as our Father. This is how we know we are children of God. And here is where God's abundant grace strikes at our very hearts. As children of God, we are, Paul tells us, joint heirs with Christ. And what does that mean? It means that what belongs to Christ belongs to us. We are accepted in the beloved, Paul says in Ephesians 1.6. We are as welcome in God's family as Jesus is. We are as welcome in God's family as Jesus is. God wants us to live in that love that he is because we are his beloved children. And he sent his son to die for us to make that possible. We have a God who suffered. He suffered humiliation, rejection, physical, emotional and spiritual pain. And he died for us. So we do share not only in the glory, but also in his suffering, as it says in verse 17. And isn't this in some way descriptive of our own lives to date? We all suffer, 
and some of us more than others. This does not mean that suffering is good. Nowhere is it suggested that suffering is good. But it is part of what it is to be human in our fallen world. And Jesus, who is love, is with us always. Whatever we are going through or experiencing, through the spirit that dwells in us. Union with Christ means identifying with him in his glory and in his suffering. But we have a future and eternal hope. A future hope where God will dwell with us, where it says in Revelations 21, verses 3 to 4, that he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. Until then, we, you, me, and everyone is invited into what Tim Keller describes in his book, King's Cross, the divine dance. He says that the Truine, the Trinitarian God, already had love of the purest kind. And so he created us not to get love from us, but to give it to us. To share his abundant love with us. And he goes on to say that if we glorify God and we center our lives around him, then we get to step into the dance that we were made for. For we're not just made to believe in God, pray and be a bit spiritual. We are made to center our entire lives on God. It is then that we find true and lasting joy because we are made to enter into the divine dance with the Trinity. So what do we do? Firstly, if you haven't and you want to, then invite the Holy Spirit into your life. This is a step you may want to take with somebody else. So Patrick and myself are here. We'd love to pray with you after the service. There'll be prayer ministry as well. Really like to urge you not to leave here if you're uncertain about what to do next. Just please come and, come and have a word with somebody. Secondly, if you have confessed that Jesus is Lord, then be assured that the Spirit of God dwells in you. We can take God at his word. We can fully trust in that sonship that he promises. And thirdly, ask yourself, what do you want dwelling in you? More of you or more of Jesus? And lastly, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege it is to be your children. Thank you that you invite us into your divine dance. Thank you that you created us to lavish your love upon us. Help us, we pray, to be attentive and obedient to your spirit that lives in us. Fill us, Lord, we pray, to overflowing so it may not only transform us into your likeness, but also those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.